from Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the dry of my distress, or the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave up, gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that they were in their, that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell among the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, as we hear from you, I pray that, God, you would use your servant, Ryan, and I pray that we would hear from you, and God, that we would, we, we would experience you in a way that transforms us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, you know, I was joking uh, with some friends of mine. You know, I, I grew up in Kentucky. I bleed blue. Go Cats. Uh, and I said, you know, if the unthinkable happened yesterday, I would not want to stand up in this pulpit and preach today. I fear these Georgia fans almost as much as I do God. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, so it's good, good to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, good to see some new faces um, and uh, we're, we're going through a series of messages through the book of Genesis. And, um, you know, last week we, we tackled uh, one of the most challenging things to, to confront in the scriptures, where we talked a lot about sexual brokenness and the impact that it had uh, in Jacob's story and his family, um, and then in our stories. And, um, and I think what, what shocks me uh, the most about this passage today is how easily um, Jacob seems to repent from such a terrible fall. Um, and, and I think I'm tempted to think that uh, there's something wrong with Jacob, that he's able to do 
to flow into that repentance so easily. But what I'm realizing is I think something's actually wrong with me. Um, I think when it's challenging for us to enter into repentance, even after a terrible fall, it shows, uh, it, re- well, it reveals something about what we believe about our God and his grace. And so uh, today is really all about repentance. It's about learning to repent. It's kind of, it's a little bit of a topical sermon, but this is something that is so important for the Christian life. When you walked in, maybe you grabbed one of these cards. A friend of mine named Monty uh, Starks uh, I was the first guy to disciple me when I got into Atlanta, and he, he taught me this thing called the, he called it the gospel waltz, uh, which is this, this little diagram right here. It's on this card that we're going to be talking about today. It's really our outline, and it really answers these questions, you know, about, about what does it really mean uh, to live the Christian life? Um, you know, is, is it about just kind of knowing more about God? How do we put God's word to use in our lives, and how, what do we do with sin as believers? Because that's, that's the biggest thing that Christians um, have a hard time with. It's like they, we, we think in our hearts that we're not supposed to sin anymore, uh, that that's not God's design, which is true. Um, but then we don't, we kind of experience a paralysis when we, when we do sin and we do fall as believers. Uh, just this week, <laughs> I was in a meeting with some guys, maybe 10 to 12 of them, and uh, on Tuesday, and uh, this meeting was about to wrap up. We're having lunch together. And, um, and this one friend of mine, uh, like bless his heart, just just kind of stepped in it a little bit. He made a comment that came out the wrong way, and it it just cut this other guy and it hurt him. And it was there's like 12 people around the table, and it was just this awkward moment, right, where he had sinned against this brother, and then this the brother that he sinned against really didn't let him off the hook. He didn't just say like, oh, it's okay, man. He's like, yeah, that hurt. And, and we're all just kind of in the middle of this, and and like they they reconciled and and repented and and forgave, and it was great. But it just kind of ended a little awkwardly, right? And so uh, I walked out and kind of secretly to myself, I was like, man, I'm so glad that wasn't me. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever been in one of those moments? Uh, Well, you know where this is going. The next day, (laughs) I was leading a meeting, uh, our staff meeting, actually. And uh, and so, you know, um, it had about eight people in it. And I uh, had asked my wife to lead the devotional for our staff meeting that day. And and she, she starts leading the devotional, and then I just kind of take it over and just kind of railroad her plan for the meeting. And guys, I'm into like a, probably like a 10-minute diatribe about what I believe about this text. And the rest of the staff team is supposed to be kind of fed and nourished by this text. And here I am like sermon prepping in front of everybody, right? It's just this awkward moment. And the, the crazy thing is, is I didn't even realize it until about 10 minutes in, right? what I was doing and the impact that it had on everyone else in the room. And so I got to experience that same awkward reality that my friend did the day before of repenting in front of a group of people. And I guess my, my, my challenge to, to myself and to us is, what would it look like to value repentance in your life? To not just tolerate repentance when you have to do it, but to value it kind of the way that David did, like as a, as a lifeline for us. Here's our big idea for today. The key to the Christian life is seeing that repentance is not a dirty word to be avoided, but rather a pathway to new life in Jesus. I think that the church, as the church, we have to recover the meaning of the word repentance and the value of it. What I would have loved to do in each of those meetings that I had this week 
was to celebrate the fact that God's grace and kindness led myself in one situation and my brother in another one to repentance, to this beautiful place. But here's the thing about repentance that's so hard for us, is that repentance requires a radical surrender to God and a desperate trust in his provision. So as, as we see this kind of surface in Jacob's life, I want, to, I want us to talk about this, this kind of gospel dance here, this, this thing that I, that, I, that I gave to you. Because really, it doesn't matter really where you enter into the dance. I, I, Megan and I took dance lessons. Uh, well, we took one dance lesson, let me put it that way. And they taught us this dance, right? It's the waltz, right? It's a three-step, one, two, three. All I remember is it's like you do this little L-shaped thing like this. Of course, you can see I can't dance. But anyway, um, this gospel dance is really what the Christian life is all about. Like if we're walking in the Spirit, we ought to be dancing multiple times a day uh, as we become aware of our sin. And so like as you see this kind of dance, this is the Christian life, repentance, belief in the gospel, and new obedience. And so I've, I've kind of crafted some questions that kind of come in between each one of those things. So like, if you're in a place where you, you're kind of like knocking it out of the park with your obedience, and you're kind of like, you know, you know, I'm walking this Christian life, and it's going well, well, God's going to uh, humbly bring you to this place where you're going to realize that you have failed, and you've fallen short, and you need to repent. And in that moment, you need to remember Romans 2, 4, that it's God's kindness that's led you to repentance, right? Um, and, and then, you know, as God's kindness leads you to repentance, it, it leads us to treasure the gospel of Jesus, to, to come to this place where, where the grace of God is not just kind of uh, the, the fuel uh, to give us life, but it's actually beautiful, and it's actually everything to us. And sometimes we just kind of use the grace of God transactionally. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, it, it converts us, it, uh, it, 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 it uh, carries us home uh, to completion, you know, it's, it, it saves us from hell, but we don't gaze at the beauty of the gospel. I think sometimes, church, we just need to sit in it long enough to actually believe it, right? And, um, and then, you know, the interesting thing is, is that when you're in that place where, where you're looking to Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says, the, the, the author and the perfecter of your faith, when you're in that place and you, and you sit in the beauty of what the gospel means long enough to believe it, guess what? You want to become like Jesus. You want to obey. You want to follow him. That's the dance. That's what the entire Christian life is about. That's how you experience revival. That's how you experience mountaintop experiences. This is it. This is God's plan for the church to live like this uh, together. So let's Let's dig into this dance together today, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this because Jacob is kind of walking this out before us, and really, you can look at, at really any, any person that's following the one true God in the Bible, and you can see him dancing. And so my heart for you is today is that you learn to dance, and you learn to value repentance, uh, and it would change you. So let's, let's dig into this today. Repent is the first kind of point, three points as, as normal, good old, good old three points. Um, experience the joy of repentance. So uh, we're in Genesis 35. So what's happened here, as I said, is that uh, Jacob hears from God, which if you were here last week, you would be surprised that God would come and meet with Jacob after what he's done. He's directly disobeyed him. They've slaughtered, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people in a super brutal way. He's overlooked his daughter who's been, you know, sexually abused. 
Uh, he's led her to this terrible place. And uh, the one thing that we know is this, is that um, Jacob doesn't have it together. See, the scriptures make no allusions to the righteousness, especially of Jacob. Uh, and the great thing about failing so miser- miserably, if I could say this, is that we have no illusions of our own inherent righteousness. So if you're in here and you failed miserably, maybe you failed publicly, maybe you failed in such a way where you don't know if you can ever get back up again, you are a perfect candidate to dance in the gospel. It's those that don't know that they've fallen or try to hide their fallenness that are scared to dance. So if you're entering the dance at, at, this, at this step, the question for you is that you've realized, you know, you've realized an area in your life where you sin and it's hitting you hard and you're tempted to hang on to that sin and let it define you. And you're tempted to let others make you hang on to that sin and let it define you. But this isn't God's will. See, the thing about as followers of Jesus, we're never encouraged to keep, to hang on to our sin. Do you know that? It's, it seems like the right thing to do. Like maybe if we just hang on to our sin long enough to learn our, from our mistakes and learn our lessons, maybe then we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and get it together. That's not how God motivates his people. He motivates his people through grace. So if you're in here today and you're tempted to hang on to that sin, I want to encourage you that repentance, as Martin Luther, the great reformer said, is a, is a lifestyle. Repentance is, is all of life. It's, it's, what, it's what we're called to do. So as soon as we become aware, aware of our sin, we are, we are called to cast it upon the Lord. As soon as we become aware of it. This is why confession and repentance is so crucial in the Christian life. If you come into this church and you're, it kind of is a different thing for you to experience a church that's like calling you to confess your sin, it's because we want you to walk in the spirit, not the flesh. And, and what we even do in our corporate worship gathering here is really supposed to be a model of what we do in our quiet time at home, around the family dinner table at home, is to value confession because that's how you get to the Spirit. So the key question that leads you here when you've got to the end of yourself is this, how does my failure reveal my need to repent? How does my failure reveal my need to repent? So Jacob's failure is obvious. I can't believe how easy it is for him to repent. Um, and I don't know what the, 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 the personal confession looked like for him and the Lord. Uh, Moses doesn't give that to us, but, but something happened because he's following the Lord now. He's done something with his sin. So here's, God, here's what God says to Jacob in verse 1 of chapter 35. He says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau the first time, you know, that you deceived him. So, so Jacob said to his household, he's, he's exercising leadership, unlike he did in chapter 34, right? He doesn't speak, the only time he speaks in chapter 34 is, is um, defending himself, right? No leadership. Chapter 35 is different. Leadership, listen to this. He says, um, put away all the foreign gods that are among you. You remember um, Rachel, uh, I think it was Rachel that took uh, Uncle Laban's Foreign gods, his little statues, I called them action figures. Y'all thought that was funny. But anyway, um, he says, put those things away. Purify yourselves. Change your garments, right? Like there's an action in repentance. There's a change of direction. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. He's distressed over his sin, right? 
and has been with me wherever I've gone. So he's looking back and he's remembering how many times God's met him on his worst days. So what do they do? They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears that I guess were associated with with idolatry, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. He left the idols in Shechem. He didn't take them with him to the promised land because it would be sinful for him to take the idols into the land of promise toward the God of promise. Jacob leaves Shechem, and the Lord reminds him that he failed to obey the vow that he made. If you remember, I think it was back in chapter 28, when, when the Lord meets Jacob when he's on the run, you remember the whole ladder scene, Jacob's ladder? And we said that that was a picture of the gospel, this, this incarnational God that will come from heaven to earth, that Jesus is the ladder, that we, don't, we can't climb our way up to the, the, the ladder to heaven. We can't, like the Tower of Babel, you know, get our way to heaven, that Jesus has to descend. He has to come to us to make us one with God. And here's what we see about this desire of God to have uninterrupted communion with us is that the, the, the craziest thing is, is that, you know, maybe God's showing up to Jacob in the, in the moments that he's doing great, you know, the moments that he's, that he's, that he's bold and he's, he's making good decisions. But the, Moses records the moments that, that the Lord is showing up in Jacob's life that are the absolute worst moments of his life, right? The first time he's deceived his brother, and his father, he's stolen the blessing, and he is on the run, like, like the cops are chasing him. And you, you guys know I have a warrant out for my arrest in Kentucky. But anyway, uh, you know, like he's, I'm just joking, but, um, you know, he's, he's on the run, right? And, he, and, and God meets him there. God meets him after Genesis 34, verse 35, verse 1. The first thing God does is he meets him. Friends, do you know that God can meet you in your, most, your worst moments as well? Maybe you've experienced that. He desires to meet us and to comfort us in the midst of our worst moments. And the Lord's presence in Jacob's life motivates his heart to change and to turn away from the idolatry. It becomes really clear that he can't have the Lord and have the idols as well. Uh, and you might say that, that maybe Jacob has taken kind of the next step of the gospel dance. He's, he's been reminded of how good God is. He's gazed at, maybe he thought about that latter moment, right? He thought about the gospel, right? The, the, the Old Testament gospel, God coming down to him. And then he's motivated to obey, to get rid of the gods, to leave them in Shechem, and then to go to Bethel, where he was supposed to go in the first place. Um, and An idol for Jacob's family, you know, was that little statue. And so my question to you is, what is the idolatry that you need to leave in Shechem? What is it for you? I asked my kids this this week, because, you know, we have our, our, our elementary age students uh, in... in um, church today, which is part of our vision, is living as the family of God together, is we want our, our younger uh, folks to, to worship with our older folks. And we want to we uh, experience the gospel together. And so if you see them coloring or kind of squirming around, uh, this is God's goodness for our church. And we want them to know that they're very welcome in here today, right? Amen. So, um, so anyway, I was asking my kids, what, what is idolatry? Uh, what do you see? Where do you see idolatry around? And they, and they, said, they said some great things. They had some great answers. Like, um, you know, they, they talked about college football, and I was like, yeah, that's the one we don't talk about, though, you know. Um, and, uh, and, they, and then they talked about just, like, friendships, like how, they, how, how their friends maybe value friendships to, to such a degree that they hurt other people and they cut them out of their lives. And we had, so we had a great conversation about what idolatry is, but it's, it's really any, any, any good thing that you turn into an ultimate thing is what, the way that Tim Keller describes it. 
So for you, what is, the, what is the good thing that maybe God has put in your life that you want to make an ultimate thing? You want to bow your knee to. Maybe it's the thing that you have a hard time trusting the Lord with. The enemy wants us to feel shame when we see our idolatry. But does the Lord? The Lord wants us to experience two things when we repent, at least two things. Two, two unexpected things, I would say. Kindness and joy. Do you associate the word kindness and joy with repentance? I don't think I do very often. Let me share these passages with you. Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is kind of like this little, it's almost like, not a, I don't want to say a throwaway verse, but Paul's just kind of writing, and it's just like, what, what, what? That's, that's mind-blowing, that it's God's kindness that's leading me to that place of repentance? I thought he was shaming me, embarrassing me, exposing me. That's kindness? Do you experience the Lord's kindness when you get to the place where you're so exposed that you have to repent? Is kindness the way that you would describe it? Because from the Lord's perspective, it's kindness. But not just kindness. In repentance, God wants to ex us to experience joy. Like Brian was reading earlier, a couple of verses that, that, that kind of correlate repentance and joy here. Uh, Psalm 51.8. Let the bones you've crushed, let the bones you've broken rejoice that it's possible to have a broken heart, broken bones, a crushed spirit, and have joy. Verse 12, he goes on to say, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And we know from reading that whole psalm, the only way that happens is if David has a repentant heart. Do you experience the Lord's kindness and the joy of his presence? Because joy is always associated with godly repentance. You know why? Because it's linked to the kind provision uh, of Jesus for us. Do you associate joy with repentance? Do you, in your home, if you're a parent, do you, is joy associated with repentance when sin is dealt with in the home? Or is shame the driving factor, exposing our little ones? It's this place where we get to where we finally realize what we've been doing, that we've been hiding in sin, that we've been drifting in darkness. But just like Jacob, hallelujah, he's found me, that I couldn't outrun him. And to be exposed is great in the kingdom of God. And we realize that all our efforts of trying to follow our own heart and make it happen on our own or like what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 64, that all of our righteous deeds, I love how the NIV says it, are like filthy rags. I'm not going to go into detail what that means, but it's bad. So he says that all, all the things that we try to bring before God, our righteous deeds, are like filthy rags from God's perspective. Because what we're saying is that our righteousness is better than the righteousness of Jesus. If repentance is a dirty word in the church, grace is a dirty word in the church. And if grace is a dirty word in the church, Jesus is a dirty word in the church. Amen? What's it look like for you to experience kindness and joy and repentance? Let's keep going here. Second thing we see is, is that we're called to believe the gospel, to gaze at the beauty of grace long enough to believe it. 
So Jacob, uh, as I said, is able to even uncomfortably move forward following God, even though there's so much pain in the rearview mirror of his life and his story. Do you know, if we, if we look in the rearview mirror uh, of our walk with God, if we look at it too long, we'll get discouraged too, won't we? We will. Too many of us try to move forward in Christ, yet we are fixated on the rearview mirror. I mean, think about it like this. Um, what would happen if you were driving on 316 and you were, you were you, you know, you're driving, you're driving on 316 headed to Athens and your eyes are just fixated on the rearview mirror? What would happen? You would wreck, right? Why do we think that looking in the rearview mirror of our lives is going to help us follow Jesus better? The rearview mirror in your car is there not to fixate on. It's, it's made to glance at to become aware of what's behind you, right? It's the same in our, in our own story. <clears throat> I, was, um, I was reminded by my amazing wife just this week uh, how important it is to gaze at the work of Jesus and the gospel long enough to believe it. I'm going to share a quote with you from a, a Scottish pastor who actually tragically died at the age of 29. His name's Robert Murray McShane. I want to share this quote to you that he, he talks about gazing at Jesus. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? He's quoting Jeremiah 17, 9 there. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, every look in the rearview mirror, every look in the mirror of your life, take 10 looks at Christ. Because he's altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace in all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. As you read that, as you hear that, how does that feel to you? What would it mean for you to live much in the smiles of God instead of the shame of your exposure? Because this is God's intention and what you're supposed to do with your sin. See, when our sin looms large, it gives us the opportunity for Jesus' love and his grace to loom large in our life as well. The Apostle Paul was a guy <clears throat> that had a pile of dead bodies in the rearview mirror of his life, like literally. You remember Acts chapter 6 when Stephen's martyred? And that little verse at the end says that, that, that Saul was standing there basically approving of what, what had happened as a Pharisee. Um, <clears throat> a pile of dead bodies, dead Christians behind him. And he wrote this to people who are tempted to look at the rearview mirror for too long. He said this, not that I've already obtained this or am perfect, but I got to press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but there's this one thing that I've learned that I have to do. Forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How's that verse hit you this morning? That Paul, 
he had a reason to look in the rearview mirror. I mean, as great as he was in the book of Acts and all the letters that we read and are blessed by, this dude was a dirty, rotten sinner. He was against the church. He persecuted and killed and murdered Christians. And he says, I can't look back for too long because it's not going to lead me forward. What's in your rearview mirror today as you think about your life? What is it that brings shame when you think about it? And what has God actually called you to do with it? Not what your flesh wants to do, not what other people want you to do, but what has God called you to do with it? You see, fixating on it is not going to transform your heart. Only the one who can transform you will change your heart. So the question that leads you to this place is this. How is a conviction of sin making me aware of how desperate I am for God? We've said this for a long time in the church, that only desperate people pray. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're a person that says, man, I wish I prayed more, you just need to pray for God to make you more desperate, because you'll pray more. And, and for us, like, when God convicts us of sin, he doesn't condemn us of sin. He convicts us of sin to the place where we'll be so desperate that we need Jesus. We can't imagine life without him. That's the place God wants to take each and every one of us. Jacob gets to this place where I think he's desperate. He's pretty aware of, uh, of how doing life on his own didn't really work out. Um, <clears throat> and I want to encourage you to keep gazing at the gospel, even as we look at what follows in Genesis 35 here. Don't just, don't just muscle through and try to power on without grace motivating your obedience. Stare at it long enough to be changed by a church, because then there'll be no doubt of where the power of your obedience comes from. Not from you, but from God. Listen to what happens in Jacob's story. So Jacob, for Jacob and for us, repentance is not just words, it's action, right? So for him, when we think about obedience and, and repentance and staring at the gospel long enough to be changed by it, like Jacob's repentance and his new obedience are the names of all these places and all these people, right? They're actual names for him. Listen to it. As they journeyed, so as, as Jacob left Shechem, which Shechem was the place that he went to try to save himself. It was, it was a city. Uh, it wasn't in the promised land. Uh, it was a place where they could be prosperous. It was a place where, where they could experience, you know, what Jacob thought would bring him life. It was a place of comfort. It was also a place of deep sin. And he went there to try to protect himself and his family. He was so terrified of the surrounding nations. You remember he, so he goes to Shechem to try to save himself from these surrounding nations. And you remember at the end of chapter 34, when Jacob finally speaks up, what he's talking about is how terrified he is of the Perizzites and, and the Hittites, right? He's so terrified that they're just going to destroy him because of what uh, Levi and Simeon have done to these guys. I want you to see the first thing that God does to bless him. The first thing as Jacob starts obeying here. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. Jacob's deepest concern is met by God's deepest provision. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that he's tried to do on his own, God didn't just say, nah, you know what, man, I'm just gonna let him wipe you out. He cares about what he's concerned about. And so they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Bethel, which is the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, and he builds an altar and calls the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. 
And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak tree. The gospel is just so palpable in this passage. You got to look for it. You got to know the context, but it's all around this. The very thing that Jacob is ter- terrified about, God takes care of in this moment. And it's just this amazing thing because God is making his enemies a footstool. And all Jacob is doing is trusting God with his life, following God with his little family who's so sinful. They got so much sin in the rear view. And he's just taking that next step, and God's caring for him. You think God will do the same thing with your life? As you take the next step, whatever it is for you, you look at Jesus and just take the next step forward. You think God will care for you? I think he will. Listen to what God, God not only changes his circumstances, but he changes Jacob's identity as well. This is something that, that had happened in Genesis 32, right? His name was supposed to be changed, but God keeps calling him Jacob, right? I, th- I thought you were Israel, and we're all confused. Is it Jacob? Is it Israel? I don't know, so I just keep saying Jacob, and I'm going to have a hard time saying Israel in the future now. But anyway, listen to what happens here. God appeared to Jacob again. So after, you know, after he appears to him at this, at the, at this point, and he's in Bethel, and he's worshiping the Lord, and God says to him, your name is Jacob, and you're acting like Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, and this is key, because he reiterates the, prom- the covenantal promise to him and the benefits of that. He says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 2 kind of language, isn't it? He's connecting him back with God's plan for the world before sin ever entered it. He's connecting him back to the story of Abraham and God's initial covenantal promise to him that he was going to create this people um, that, that he would bless and that would bless the world. He's hooking Jacob, now Israel, into that promise. He's reminding him that no amount of sin that he's committed or that has been committed under his leadership can separate him from that promise. It's an amazing promise. Don't overlook it. And, and then he goes on to tell him what's going to happen. A nation and a company of nations are going to come from you. And kings are going to come from your own body. The very people you're afraid of, you're going to be more mighty than them because of my grace. The land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I'm going to give to you. And I'll give the land to, to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob sets up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Only the creator and sustainer of life gets to define who we are. Not Genesis 34, not that part of your story. That doesn't define who you are. When you belong to God, that sin is confessed, there are consequences that follow it, and you, you, you can't get away from all those. But Genesis 34 does not define a child of God. And how many times do we let our experiences or sinful people in our life or disappointing situations define us? How many times do we continue to live as Jacob when, when the Lord, through Christ, calls us Israel? It's interesting you know, kids, how many covenant kids, how the, their stories are like this. And, and, and your parents can tell you this too. You know, it goes like this, you know, I walked the aisle when I was seven or I took the class and I, you know, I said, you know, I said the prayer uh, and, I, and I gave my life to Jesus. But I really became a Christian when I was 19 in college 
when I really realized that I was a, a dirty, rotten sinner, right? And, and I get what they mean, right? That so many of your stories in this room, so many stories in this church, and what they really mean is that that was the moment they experienced the depth of their sin, that they were really separated from God. Jacob has become desperate after this event in Shechem. You see, Jacob walked the aisle back at Bethel, but it didn't start sinking in until Shechem happened. That's when he really knew how much he needed God's grace. And his name had been changed to Israel, but he was still living like Jacob. Do you ever have moments like that? Of course you do. How do you respond in those moments? And what would it look like for us to be the kind of people that just call a Jacob a Jacob? Just say, hey man, you're just being a Jacob. Maybe that's a t-shirt we can get. Stop being a Jacob. I don't know. Um, but as children of God, we have to, we have, to have environments where it's, it's free, where we're free to confess that we're living like Jacob, even though God calls us Israel. What's that look like in your family? What would it look like for your household to be a place, if you've got children, where, where they could confess, where our children could confess how broken they are, where they see mom and dad confess, even though God calls me Israel, God adopts me as a son, a daughter, through Jesus, I'm living in my flesh. How much would that change the dynamics and the vulnerability of your household, of your friendships, of your small group, of your D group? How beautiful would that be? You know, the best thing to do in those moments is to stop and to take inventory, not get to work, trying to save your, yourself. Most of the time, we don't stare at the gospel long enough to be changed by it. We just kind of move on with it in a transactional way. And when we refuse to wait, we cannot live in spirit-empowered lives. You know, life, life still has its challenges as Israel is learning to walk in obedience. I mean, think about this. Both both Deborah and Rebecca die, right? That this is happening as God's changing them. There's still the effects of the fall all around Jacob Israel, slash Israel's life. And it's, it's so interesting, even the name. So Rachel, Rachel dies in this really tragic way, right? She's, she's birthing her last child, her last son. And when she's dying, her, her experience, her perspective of what's happening, you know, they've, they've always named their children based on kind of this, their circumstances and what they're dealing with, right? I mean, we looked at that last week when Leah's sons, Levi and Simeon, were, you know, they were named about their struggle, their, their mom and dad's struggle, that their names have meaning to follow that. You can, you can check that out if you forgot that. But, um, but even, even for this little guy, Benani, is what Rachel names him, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob is, so Israel is so quick to change his name after he's born. What's he change his name to? Benjamin. Son, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. Even in the midst of the pain and the consequences of sin, because Israel was now linked up with the one true God, walking in grace, walking in the promise, trusting God to provide for him, his perspective had changed. That even though this is an awful situation, the love of his life dies giving birth to the son. So every time he sees the son, he could choose to think about his sorrow or he could choose to think about the strength of the Lord's grace in his life. Benjamin, every time he calls upon his name. You see, nothing about Israel was strong except his God. What would it look like for you right now to spend less time looking in the rearview mirror of your mistakes and spending more time gazing at the beauty of the gospel? 
and encouraging others that you're in community with to do the same thing. What if new obedience that you so desperately desire could be found through gazing at the gospel long enough to be changed by it? The strength for this type of life comes through slowing down long enough to really let the gospel sink into our hearts. The third thing is this. Let's land the plane here. Obey. I like the word fight, too. We could, we could switch that out. We enter into a new obedience through the strength of grace. You see, for Israel, obedience is woven throughout this entire dance. Um, you know, th- this passage is filled with names and places that are specific to Israel, right? They're names of disobedience and obedience. Shechem, disobedience. Jacob, disobedience. Bethel and Israel, obedience. But they, you know, not perfect obedience, but, but they're, they're reminders of what God has done in his life. If you found yourself in a place where your failures and weaknesses have stopped you long enough to gaze at the gospel, it's going to lead you to one place. And you don't even have to really think about it that much. It's, it's your life begins to look like Jesus as you follow him. So the question that leads you here is, how is faith in the gospel moving me toward deeper obedience? I think, um, I think the word um, obedience or holiness, it tends to scare us people who've experienced a great freedom in the gospel, right? Because maybe you grew up in a legalistic church or a moralistic church who, who's more concerned about looking the part than actually having the heart, you know? Maybe you grew up in that place. I wanna, I wanna encourage you not to be scared of God's call for holy living, not to be scared of, of what Jesus says, even in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, obey my commands. Like, if you really love me and the gospel's really changed, you obey me. And of course, you're not gonna do that perfectly and you're gonna keep dancing. But don't be afraid of this. There's a reason why Paul, when he writes about the gospel in Colossians chapter three, he's like, you've died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And he's, he's talking about the beauty of God's unmerited favor. But then he says, but hey, put on the new man. Put on the new man. Don't walk in the flesh, put on the new man. There's a reason why Jacob in this story when they, when they repent of their idolatry, he says, go change clothes. Maybe they, maybe they physically needed to change. Maybe the clothes were dirty, or maybe it was a spiritual metaphor. I don't know. But when God changes us, we're called to put on the new man. And that new man has certain behaviors with it. And we're not going to live that perfectly, but it shouldn't stop us from pursuing it from grace-empowered living, right? And I think a lot of times in the church, we can be afraid of that. We can be afraid of falling back into those old patterns, but grace shapes our lives, and we, we don't have to be afraid of that, church. Put on the new man. What's that mean for you today? I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to experience a lifestyle of revival. I, I don't know if anybody's ever been a part of like an, like an official like revival, you know, like a, like a moment where it's like, like that was something significant that God did. It was extraordinary. I think I've had moments and seasons of ministry where that's happened. And I actually studied in my doctorate, I studied like kind of the history of revivals in America. Uh, and it was amazing. Uh, and even, even some of the worldwide revivals. And there's, there's this one that happened in Korea that I mentioned a couple years ago uh, in a sermon uh, that happened that's, that's shaped Gwinnett County uh, drastically, right? How many Korean churches are in Gwinnett County? A lot, right? There was this revival that happened in, in Korea in, in the early 1900s. And there was this American missionary um, by the name of William Blair. And uh, he went and he planted a church in what is now North Korea. And, uh, and he noticed that there was this tension 
in the church, and, and, and they, they, they were kind of dead. At the, at the, they had a lot of people in the room, but it was kind of dead. And there was this tension between the leaders of the church. And, uh, and, and, and um, one of the elders asked Blair to pray for him because, because there's just tension between the team. And um, here's what Blair says, and I don't have it on the screen. I'll read it to you. He says, then, then began a meeting, and there's, like, there's, there's, like, there's a prayer meeting Tuesday, thousands of people in the sanctuary. He says, then began a meeting, uh, the like of which I've never seen before, nor wish to see again unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Because what had happened is they, the, the pastor of the church got up and he started repenting of, of, of his anger and his hatred toward his fellow elders in front of thousands of people. And this meeting follows right here. It says, every sin a human being commit, can commit was publicly confessed that night. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. He said, I've had mine. But I also know that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession, and no power on earth can stop it. The, the Korean revival started from a place of deep public repentance. Where do you think the revival in your heart's going to start? You look at the history of revivals, it starts with deep repentance. That's what I want for us, church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that you invite us to dance in the gospel, Lord. <sighs> that, um, that we don't have to be afraid of how bad we fail you. That we don't have to stare uh, longer than necessary at our sin. And that you have a wonderful plan for our life that actually includes handling our sin for us, Lord. We think, we're convinced that you have a plan for our lives when we feel like we're doing well. But Lord, I'm just reminded in Jacob, Israel's story, that we can really trust you when we see that you know what to do with our sin. Lord, my prayer is, uh, is that we might be able to agree with the Apostle Paul and believe uh, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Father, we just confess that it's hard for us to value repentance. And it's hard for us to value it because we don't experience your kindness most of the time. We don't experience your joy most of the time. God, would you help us to recapture that kind of a heart and experience as we follow you? And Lord, I even pray as we turn to this table here that you would meet us just in a deep way as we take inventory of what's inside of us and what you have for us in Jesus. I pray that in his name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.